123. Testing 123. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode Jesus, who's your daddy? Now, that question might lead one to think that this podcast is going to deal with the issue of whether Jesus' father was God or Joseph or perhaps some other individual. But actually, we're going to be talking about the question of whether Jesus was the son of David. Now, we know that Jesus is commonly understood to be the son of David. We will talk about why it was that the common belief was that the Messiah would have to be a descendant of David, that that was one of the criteria that the Messiah would have to fulfill in order to be the true Messiah, whether it was that Jesus was actually a descendant of David, and perhaps a little bit about how it was that that belief came to be formulated in the first century CE. But before I get to that, I want to talk a little bit about the birth of Jesus, because there were a number of things that the Messiah was supposed to do in order to qualify as the Messiah, and those things were laid out in prophecies as they were generally understood in Jesus' day, prophecies now contained in what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. One of those prophecies had to do with the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. Now, spoiler alert, Jesus was almost certainly not, repeat, not born in Bethlehem. And yet the gospel writers felt it important to put him there in order to make him fit the bill for the predicted Messiah. Mark, the earliest gospel to be written, says nothing about Jesus' birth. It starts at his baptism. But the next two gospels to be written, Matthew and Luke, do talk about the birth of Jesus. And both of them have Jesus being born in Bethlehem. And in fact, Matthew is quick to say that thus was fulfilled the prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. The thing to note is that the authors of Matthew and Luke, while they have Jesus being born in Bethlehem, pursue completely different reasons and scenarios for how it was that Jesus came to be born in Bethlehem. This is talked about in detail in a number of other podcasts, so I'm just going to be hitting the highlights of this subject to lead into the question of whether Jesus was actually the son of David. Most of us are familiar with the Christmas story from Luke and how it is that the Lucan narrative has a worldwide tax being instituted by the emperor and how everyone in the entire known world at the time, at least those people under the rule of the Roman Empire, had to go to the land or the city of their fathers in order to be taxed. Now that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. There is no record outside the Bible of any such requirement for taxation, that everybody has to go to the city of their fathers, what would that even look like? It's a huge head-scratcher. But it is clear in Luke that this is the modus operandi of how it is we're going to get Jesus to Bethlehem in order to be born. In other words, how we're going to get his parents to Bethlehem in order for Jesus to be born. This is what it says in Luke chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Yeah, like they couldn't be taxed where they are. They have to all go to the city of their fathers. And verse 3 says, And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth, which is where they lived, presumably, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So we see already that for Luke, it is very important that Jesus be a son of David, and therefore he has Joseph be a son of David. 
Note that it said that Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So if Joseph is of the lineage of David, then his son, Jesus, would be of the lineage of David as well. Now, you may be noting that there could be a problem here because if God is actually the father of Jesus, it doesn't make any difference what lineage Joseph has because Joseph is not the father of Jesus. But these are wrinkles that will be ironed out over time. The main point being is that in Luke, Jesus gets to Bethlehem to be born because of this worldwide tax. They actually live in Nazareth, but they go to Bethlehem only because they are required to by this decree from Caesar Augustus. Switch over to Matthew. Matthew also has Jesus being born in Bethlehem, but for an entirely different reason. Matthew has nothing about a worldwide tax. Matthew has nothing about Mary and Joseph living in Nazareth at the time and going to Bethlehem. Instead, it is clear from Matthew that Bethlehem is the hometown of Mary and Joseph. This is where they live. And we understand that is the case because Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And approximately two years later, when the wise men arrive with their gifts, Joseph and Mary are still in Bethlehem. And Jesus is about two years old, presumably. So from this, we can understand a couple of things. The first is that it was very important to the authors of these Gospels that Jesus be born in Bethlehem in order to fulfill the predictive requirement that the Messiah be born in Bethlehem. The second thing we can understand is that because these stories are completely different in how Jesus gets to Bethlehem in order to be born, it is quite likely and even almost certain that Jesus was not born in Bethlehem. And these two stories are works of fiction that were designed to get Jesus to Bethlehem to be born. The reason I bring this up is to show the creative writing and the historical revision that went on in the Gospels in order to make Jesus fit the bill for the predictions of the Messiah found in the Hebrew Scriptures. Well, there is another requirement in the Hebrew Scriptures regarding the Messiah, at least as it was understood among the Jewish people of Jesus' day. And that is that the Messiah would have to be a descendant of David, or otherwise called the son of David. The reason for this, in brief, is because David was the first individual to establish a monarchy of the combined kingdoms of Judah and Israel. He ruled over a united Israel. And the prophets of David's day were quick to make prophecies that his kingdom would rule forever, and there would never be a time when a descendant of David did not sit on the throne of Israel. Unfortunately, that is definitely not what actually happened. What happened is that Solomon came along as David's son, and by the time we get to Solomon's son, or David's grandson, the kingdoms split apart again, and no longer is there a ruler over a combined Israel. Worse than that, around 600 BCE, the southern kingdom, Judah, the one that contains the city of Jerusalem, where David's throne was located, is destroyed and all the Jews taken into captivity in Babylon. The Jewish people are in Babylon for about 70 years before they are allowed to return by the Persian king, who has in the meantime taken over from Babylon, and the Jews are allowed to go back and rebuild their temple as recounted in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Hebrew Scriptures. So even though the prophecy that a descendant of David would forever and continually from the time of David sit upon the throne of Israel, even though that prophecy obviously did not happen, the belief arose that a Messiah would arise 
who would fulfill that requirement. And in order to make it match that prophecy, at least as much as possible, that individual, that Messiah, would have to be a descendant of David. But just as it appears that Jesus was not actually born in Bethlehem, but the authors of the New Testament engaged in some creative writing in order to make him born at Bethlehem to fulfill the requirements of the Messiah, it also appears that the writers of the New Testament may have done the same thing in order to make Jesus into the son of David. And the evidence for that actually comes from the New Testament itself. Now, this analysis is going to have a great deal to do with Psalm 110, verse 1. This is a very commonly heard psalm. It is actually the most referenced and the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, which is one of the reasons that we hear it so often. And here is what Psalm 110, verse 1 sounds like in the King James Version of the Old Testament. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Let me repeat that. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now I will tell you that even after many years of studying the New Testament, studying the Old Testament, I had never understood what this verse means. Initially, it is quite confusing because it talks about two lords. The first Lord saying unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. What on earth does that even mean? Well, there are a number of interpretations of this verse that were proposed by different rabbis throughout the ages and as well as many different Christians after Christianity became a religion. But the primary understanding, or at least the one reflected in the New Testament of the Jews in Jesus's day, was that this psalm is a messianic psalm. It is also written by David, as most of the Psalms were traditionally ascribed. And the idea is that David, King David, wrote this Psalm in order to be sung or chanted in his honor. So when it says, the Lord said unto my Lord, the first Lord is God and the second Lord is David being referred to in the third person. Remember, if it's being chanted by his priests, then David would be referred to in the third person, even though it is David who is believed to have been writing it. He's writing it for others to say about him. The first Lord, if you look in your King James Version of Psalm 110 verse 1, is in all capitals. They are lowercase capitals, but they're all capitals nonetheless. This signifies that the King James translators were translating the Tetragrammaton in Hebrew. And the Tetragrammaton were four letters which were used to designate the name of God. The four letters are sometimes referred to as Yahweh or in a more anglicized version, Jehovah. Jehovah being the anglicized version of Yahweh or the name of God from the Old Testament. The first Lord in that sentence is God. It is Jehovah. So instead of saying Lord, I'm going to start saying Jehovah in order to make it more clear. So the Lord or Jehovah said unto my Lord. Now that my Lord is not in all caps. That is simply the word Adonai, which can refer to a divine Lord or a human Lord. And in this case, it is a human Lord and it is David himself. So what this is actually saying is God, Jehovah said unto my Lord or David, God said unto David, sit thou David at my right hand until I make thine enemies, thy footstool. So David, or the second Lord in this passage, is the Messiah. 
And it is on behalf of the Messiah that the Lord God is going to fight his battles. And it is the Lord God who will lay waste to all the enemies of the Messiah until those enemies can be made into a nice footstool for the Messiah to put his feet on when he's sitting on his throne. Now, a little personal backstory on this is that I had never understood this passage until I stopped going to church back around 2014. For a number of months after I stopped going to church, I would take the time on Sundays that I would have been in church and devote those hours to studying the scriptures. The first thing I did was to read through the New Testament, and the New Testament quotes this psalm a number of times. Now, in the past, I'd read this psalm many, many times in the New Testament and in the Old Testament as I would read through, but I would never take the time to stop and analyze it and think, what on earth does this mean? And in 2014, I finally took the time to stop and not continue reading into the next verses, but simply to stop and look at this and try and understand what on earth it means and what it's doing in the New Testament. This verse is quoted in Matthew, it's quoted in Mark, and it's quoted in Luke. It also ends up being quoted in Acts as well as in Hebrews. So let's take these in chronological order as much as we can. Because Mark is generally believed to be the earliest written gospel, let's look there and see how this verse is used. That would be in Mark chapter 12 and verse 36. Here's what we read there, starting with verse 35. And Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? So what he's saying is, why do the scribes say that the Messiah or Christ, Christ being the Greek word for anointed one, which would be the equivalent of Messiah in Hebrew, how say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? So obviously a teaching of the Jews in Jesus's day. Jesus goes on because he's going to correct the scribes. For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. So Jesus is quoting Psalm 110, verse 1, from the Hebrew Scriptures. Jesus concludes, David therefore himself calleth him Lord, or in other words, calleth the Messiah or the Christ Lord. And whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. This is Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. Now this was endlessly confusing to me, and I never understood it until I finally stopped and took the time to look at it and think about it and understand it. And I will tell you that my Bible studies regarding Jesus being born at Bethlehem and that being an exercise in creative writing to have Jesus fulfill this Old Testament prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem helped inform my understanding of this passage. Because it makes no sense to me if Jesus is the son of David and everybody understands that he's the son of David. How does this make any sense? I'm going to read it to you once again. And Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore himself calleth him Lord. And whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. That's all it says here in this story. This is a self-contained discrete story within the narrative in Mark. But as I looked at it, and as I pondered how it did not make any sense for Jesus to be saying this, if Jesus was the son of David, it occurred to me, like a light bulb going off, that the only way this story makes sense is if Jesus actually is not a descendant of David. 
And what he's doing is he's responding to the Jewish belief and anticipation that the Messiah would be the son of David. Well, Jesus is not a son of David. Therefore, he has to take this passage and interpret it in a different way and show that this passage does not support the idea that the Messiah would be the son of David. Now, if you look at it from that point of view, I'm going to read it once again and see how it makes so much more sense for Jesus, who understands he's not a son of David, to be taking issue with this passage from the Old Testament Psalm. And this is what he says. And Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how say the scribes, or in other words, why do the scribes say that the Messiah or the Christ is the son of David? Obviously, he's going to be correcting them on that issue because they're wrong. Verse 36 is where he quotes the Psalm. For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, quote, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. And this is Jesus's exegesis of this passage. David therefore himself calleth him Lord. So what he's saying is that this psalm is written by David, the Lord, the second Lord in this passage, where it says, the Lord said unto my Lord, David calls the Messiah Lord. And if David calls the Messiah Lord, how is it that the Messiah or the Lord would be a descendant of David? David's not going to call a descendant of his Lord. He might call someone else above him Lord, but not his son. This is the reasoning that Jesus appears to be using. David therefore himself calleth him Lord, and whence is he then his son? So in other words, why would he be a son if David's calling him Lord? And the common people heard him gladly. So the common people like this interpretation for whatever reason, but the Jewish leaders did not because it contradicted their understanding of this passage. From their point of view, yes, a Messiah is going to come, but that Messiah has to be a descendant of David. Jesus is not a descendant of David, which immediately from their perspective disqualifies him from any ability to be the Messiah. Jesus now takes this passage on which they base that belief, turns it around and says, no, I'm not a descendant of David, but the Messiah doesn't have to be a descendant of David. If the Messiah were really a descendant of David, why would David himself call the Messiah Lord? That's what's going on here in Mark, which is the earliest gospel. Once again, remember, Mark says nothing about Jesus being descended from David. And in fact, Mark contains this passage, which indicates strongly the understanding, at least of the author of Mark, that Jesus was not a descendant of David and that Jesus knew it. Now, let's see how the same passage is used throughout the rest of the New Testament, because it appears to go through a process of development. First, let's go to Matthew. Now, Matthew has a genealogy of Jesus. It is written maybe 20 years after Mark, according to the scholars. In Matthew chapter 1, it gives the genealogy of Jesus, and it traces Jesus back to David in chapter 1, verse 6. So by the time Matthew is written, the project is underway to make Jesus fit the traditional understanding of Psalm 110, verse 1, that the Messiah would be a descendant of David, and it is shown in Jesus' genealogy. He is a descendant of David, and therefore he does qualify as being able to be the Messiah. For this, we have to go to Matthew chapter 22, and we'll start in verse 41 for this story. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David, because that's what they understood, right? 
They say unto him, the son of David, he, Jesus, saith unto them, how then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. Jesus then asked the rhetorical question, if David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. So Matthew is still using this statement that was obtained from Mark, apparently, because Matthew, as well as Luke, appear to be based upon the outline given in Mark. They both add different things, but most scholars agree that they are basing their Gospels on sources that both include Mark. So Matthew, or the author of Matthew, has before him the Gospel of Mark, which he's going to look at being about 20 or 30 years earlier than when he is writing to be a good source to getting information about Jesus. And this passage, this use of Psalm 110.1 shows up in Matthew because it shows up in Mark. The interesting thing is that this creates a tension now within Matthew because now that 20 or 30 years have gone by since the writing of Mark, Matthew has Jesus definitively in his genealogy being a descendant of David. And yet, even though he says that in chapter one of Matthew, by the time he gets to chapter 22, he's repeating this story from Mark. Remember, Mark has nothing about Jesus's genealogy. And the story from Mark argues against the idea that Jesus is a descendant of David. That's how it creates this tension on this issue within the gospel of Matthew itself. Once again, Jesus arguing with the Pharisees that Psalm 110 verse 1 does not mean that the Messiah is going to be a descendant or a son of David, even though in chapter 1 of Matthew, we have the genealogy that says Jesus really was a descendant of David. Hence, this tension. We're going to find the same tension occurring in the Gospel of Luke, where once again, there's a genealogy of Jesus, which is a little bit different from the one in Matthew, but it takes him back to David just the same. So once again, we've got a genealogy in Luke making Jesus a son of David, and yet we also have the story taken from Mark once again, where Jesus is arguing that the Messiah does not have to be a descendant of David. And for that, we're going to go to Luke chapter 20, where we find, starting in verse 39, then certain of the scribes answering said, Master, thou hast well said. And after that, they durst not ask him any question at all. And he said unto them, How say they that Christ is David's son? And David himself saith in the book of Psalms, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore calleth him Lord. How is he then his son? So once again, just as in Matthew, Luke includes this story about Jesus's novel interpretation of Psalm 110 verse 1, even though it creates a tension within the story contained in Luke, where Jesus is set forth as being a descendant and therefore a son of David. I think this is one of the reasons why this was so hard for me to clue into is because it's obvious, at least from Matthew and Luke, that Jesus is a son of David. And that's why it made it so hard to understand what Jesus here is saying in both those gospels about Psalm 110.1. When I finally understood or realized the possibility that Jesus was not a son of David, that Jesus knew he was not a son of David, that his followers knew he was not a son of David, and that the Pharisees knew he was not a son of David, all of a sudden, these passages opened up their understanding to me, and I could make sense of them in a way I never had before. 
By the way, let me say a couple of things here. First off, while the majority of New Testament scholars agree that Mark was written earliest for a variety of reasons, I think that this understanding and the usage of Psalm 110 verse 1 supports that argument. Because it makes sense that if Mark is first and it is being used as a source by both the author of Matthew and Luke, then they would be inclined to borrow this story from Mark for inclusion in their own Gospels. Matthew and Luke are including it in their Gospels because they think it is authentic because it is 20 to 30 years earlier and it is found in an approved and accepted source, i.e. the Gospel of Mark. Now, if Mark were not written earliest, it would not make any sense, I think, for Matthew and Luke to include this story in a Gospel that they have both written, which include a genealogy of Jesus, which says he is from the line of David. So I think that line of reasoning helps support the argument that Mark was written first, before Matthew and Luke, and that Matthew and Luke indeed did use Mark as a source for composing their Gospels. I also think it is likely that this is one of the sayings of Jesus found in the Gospels that is most likely to be authentic. In other words, most likely to be something that Jesus actually said. And here we're talking about the rule or the criterion of embarrassment that is used by scholars in order to try and determine what are more likely to be early and original sayings of Jesus versus those that may not be early or original. Scholars envision a Jesus who said some things that were attractive to his followers that developed him some sort of following, but of course, after he dies and the legend grows, other ideas, other sayings are created and then attributed to Jesus after the fact. The quest is to get to the original Jesus and what he originally said. So this criterion of embarrassment is the general idea that there are sayings attributed to Jesus that nobody would have said about him later on. In other words, after the myth began to grow. An example of this might be indications in the New Testament and in the Gospels that Joseph really was Jesus' father. Well, we know that later Christians would have eschewed the idea that Joseph was Jesus' father because Jesus came to be understood to be the Son of God over time and over theological development. And therefore, for a later Christian to have written anything indicating that Jesus was actually the Son of Joseph and not the Son of God would have been blasphemy. They would not have written something like that. But, but if we were to find a saying that indicates that Joseph really was Jesus' dad, that would have been embarrassing to a later Christian who believed that God was the father of Jesus and not Joseph. That's the criterion of embarrassment the scholars talk about. And so if we find an indication in the New Testament, which we do, and in other extra-biblical gospel accounts, that Joseph was the father of Jesus, that, by the criterion of embarrassment, is determined to more likely be an original saying, an earlier thought, that actually does date to earliest Christianity, rather than the Christianity that developed over the decades and centuries after that. So using that same criterion of embarrassment, on Mark's use of Psalm 110 verse 1, where Jesus argues that the Messiah does not have to be the son of David, even though later on it would develop that Jesus was the son of David, an argument from Jesus that he was not the son of David, using the criterion of embarrassment, would suggest it is an earlier statement of Jesus and is more likely to be authentic and actually something that may have been said by Jesus himself. So this interpretation of Psalm 110 verse 1 as it's used in the New Testament indicates that Mark was the earliest 
gospel written, and it also indicates that this is something that really was said by Jesus himself. And I think those are two important points to make. Now, John says nothing about this passage from Psalm 110, verse 1, but we find in Acts that it shows up early. It shows up in chapter 2. Now, Acts, by the way, is likely written by the same individual who wrote Luke. Not that the person Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, but that the same person who wrote the Gospel of Luke likely also wrote the book of Acts. So this would also be written about 20 to 30 years after Mark. But the way that this passage from Psalms is used here in Acts chapter 2 is now not being used to argue that Jesus is not a son of David, or in other words, that the Messiah is not the son of David. It's now being used to argue exactly the opposite, that David is not the one that this applies to, but actually it's Jesus. Now listen to what it says here, where Peter is speaking, and he is preaching Jesus as the Messiah. I'm going to start reading in advance of where he gets to the use of Psalm 110.1. I'm going to start in verse 25 of Acts chapter 2. Peter speaking, For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. So here is the idea from a Davidic psalm that his soul will not be left in hell, which was applied here by Peter to David. And now Peter's going to use that idea in explicating Psalm 110.1. Men and brethren, he says, men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Okay, so we know that David is dead and buried, and his body is in the tomb. Therefore, Peter goes on, therefore, being a prophet, that's David being a prophet, he can prophesy, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. See, there's that idea among Judaism of the Messiah being a descendant of David. Peter goes on. He, David, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses." Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted. Now, remember, this right hand language is going to come from Psalm 110.1. This is what he's leading up to. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. And that's the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost and people speaking in tongues, which has happened earlier in this chapter, is what Peter's referring to. Now, verse 34, for David is not ascended into the heavens. What do you mean? He's not ascended into the heavens. Well, that's why I said, we all know that his body is still here with us and he's buried in his tomb. David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand. Okay. Until I make thy foes, thy footstool. So there's the quote from Psalm 110.1. But the author here using Peter's voice is using this verse to say that the Lord who is sitting on the right hand of God is actually Jesus Christ. It's not David, it's Jesus. How can it be David if David is still buried and his body is with us to this day? 
Because obviously, if God is saying unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool, that's got to be happening where God lives. It's got to be happening in heaven. David has not ascended to heaven, therefore my Lord cannot be David, it must be Jesus, whom Peter is testifying did ascend into heaven as we read happened in Acts chapter 1. And based upon this, Peter now makes this pronouncement in verse 36, based upon his interpretation of Psalm 110.1. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Because now he's ascended to heaven. He can qualify as the Christ, or in other words, the Messiah, under this interpretation of Psalm chapter 110, verse 1, to sit on the right hand of God. So it's not about David anymore, according to Peter in Acts chapter 2, it's about Jesus. So we've gone from Mark's use of this passage from Psalm 110, verse 1, to show that Jesus is not a son of David, to the use of the same passage in Acts chapter 2, to show that Jesus is is the Messiah, which is a pretty neat trick when you stop and think about it. And it is not only a pretty neat trick, when I stop and think about it, it's also an indication that the idea that the same author who wrote Luke also wrote the book of Acts may be incorrect. Indeed, it would be a strange thing if the author of Luke, who uses this passage from Psalm 110.1 to argue that Jesus is not the Son of God, would turn around and in the book of Acts use the same passage to argue the opposite meaning, that really Psalm 110 verse 1 proves that Jesus is the Messiah. But in closing, let's go to the use of the same passage of Psalm 110.1 in the final time it's quoted in the New Testament chronologically, which is in the epistle to the Hebrews. And the author of Hebrews in chapter 1 and verse 13 is going to follow the lead of the interpretation used in Acts in order to argue that this passage from Psalm 110 verse 1 shows that Jesus was the Messiah, that he's not just an angel, he's actually greater than the angels. And here's what he says there. But to which of the angels said he, i.e. God, the Lord, all capitals, Jehovah, but to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? So the author of Hebrews is taking now what is the general understanding among Christians, apparently, at least the later developed idea among Christians at the time that the epistle to the Hebrews was written, that this verse from Psalms applies to Jesus as being the Messiah in order to make an argument that Jesus is higher than the angels. He's not even using it to argue that Jesus is the Messiah, as in Acts chapter 2, once again completely the opposite of what Mark uses the passage to argue. But by the time the book of Hebrews is written, this understanding that Psalm chapter 110 verse 1 shows that Jesus is the Messiah is so well accepted, he's not even arguing that anymore. He's using that understood interpretation of this psalm that Jesus is the Messiah to make a secondary argument that Jesus is higher than the angels. Once again, this is what he says in verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 1, but to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Well, I will tell you back in 2014, I was very excited when I came to this understanding of the usage of Psalm chapter 110 verse 1 
in the New Testament, how it was originally used to show that Jesus was not a descendant of David and how it thereafter became used to show that Jesus actually was a descendant of David. And of course, when I make a discovery like this, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to bounce it off other people who are smarter than I am, who have a better background than I do, to see if they agree. Does it hold up under their scrutiny? The informal version of peer review. And I did that, and I got responses back that, yeah, this seemed to be correct. I did seem to be onto something. And then the last step is, has anybody else published on this before? Because just because I haven't read about it anywhere before doesn't mean it hasn't been published on before. This is the part where I did a search and I found that actually a few years before I made this discovery, a Bible scholar had made the same discovery and had published on it in a peer-reviewed publication. So that's where I let it drop. It's already been discovered. It's already been published on. There's nothing for me to add to the discussion, but I did want to add it here today. I wanted to let you know about this discovery that I made back in 2014 and how it appears using the New Testament alone as our guide that not only was Jesus not born at Bethlehem, Jesus was most likely not even a son of David and that both of these concepts were reworked over time by the writers of the New Testament in order to change the narrative so that Jesus would be born at Bethlehem and Jesus would be a son of David, that he could thereby qualify in all respects to be the Messiah, the Christ, and the Savior of the world. I want to thank from my heart all the listeners who have made donations to Radio Free Mormon. If you have not yet made a donation to Radio Free Mormon, please go to RadioFreeMormon.org right now. Click the donate button and make a monthly recurring donation today. $5 a month, $10 a month, whatever you can afford. Your donations do keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. Well, that's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. (laughs) 